Autism Through Cinema. Welcome to the Autism Through Cinema podcast, investigating autistic presence and expression on screen. In today's episode, we continue our special series of interviews with autistic creatives. Regular hosts Janet Harbord and Ethan Lyon are joined by autistic visual artist and filmmaker Daniel Bendelman to discuss his work. Daniel is a doctoral researcher at the University of Kent, where he researches aesthetics, critical autism studies and visual arts. To find out more about Daniel and his installation work, just follow the various links in the description of this episode. Huge thanks to Daniel for giving up his time to talk with us. Many thanks to you also for listening. We hope you enjoy the discussion. Welcome to this episode of Autism Through Cinema podcast. This week it's my pleasure to welcome our guest, Daniel Bendelman, uh, for a discussion of his work, particularly his film, The Life and Death of an Anonymous Autistic Man from 2018. With me today is our regular uh, Ethan Lyon. Ethan, do you want to just say a few words about yourself? Yeah, I'll be very, very brief. Uh, hello, my name is Ethan. Uh, you, for some people who have been on this podcast already or have heard us a few times, unfortunately, you know about me. For those who are lucky to have not, I'm a PhD student in the University of Southampton studying uh, Gothic horror cinema and its relationship to autism. Uh, I am diagnosed autistic. Um, yeah, that's pretty much everything you need to know about me. Or, or obviously, that I'm very much looking forward to this week's episode, as it's uh, an opportunity to have a, uh, a conversation with an autistic artist, and that's something which is incredibly exciting for me. Thanks, Ethan. Um, I'm Janet Harbord. I'm a non-autistic film professor at Queen Mary and co-lead on this project. So, Daniel, uh, you're a neurodivergent installation artist and academic whose work and practice is concerned with exploring the effects that the stereotypes produced within autism representation through the media has in the public sphere. Your practice embodies the post-dramatic and Kafkaesque radical aesthetics of the 21st century live art, and you work to make spectators confront urgent issues surrounding the politics of autism today. Now, you trained at the Royal Central School of Speech and Drama in Applied Theatre, and I think that's very evident in your work, <laughs> uh, and returned to continue training in performance practices as research for postgrad training. Uh, and you're currently undertaking your doctoral project, your research at the University of Kent, uh, and your practice as research uses live art to critique representations of autism found in the media. The title of your thesis, How Might the Use of PAR Methodologies, Practice of Research Within Critical Autism Studies, Offer New Strategies of Cripping, Deconstructing and Recreating the Production of Autism Narrative Through Popular Media. Now, that's quite a title you've got there, Daniel. Um, do you want to talk, <laughs> us, talk us through uh, some of your interests that that come out of that, such as cripping, deconstructing and recreating? Yes, that would be my pleasure. Um, so I, I have been fascinated by the writings of Michel Foucault for quite a few years. And in some of his books, particularly some of the writers around, I believe he writes around the history of sexuality, biopolitics and later scholars who write around disability politics, there's a lot of talk about how Foucault specifically writes around how perhaps in the 90s and early 2000s there were gay and lesbian groups who were taking stereotypes of being um, gay and lesbian um, and what they were doing was that they were reverting those stereotypes, they're using those quite homophobic power mechanics and in a way making them into satire, they're equipping them to expose why they were harmful to the LGBTQ community. And I was very, I was very inspired by that. And I thought, can we do the same with how autism representation works? 
And can we do that through live art? And I noticed that while there was an awful lot of literature written and a lot, an awful lot of scholarly articles written around the critiques of autism representation through, through both non-autistic and autistic scholars, I noticed that nobody was really strongly doing it through live art, not in terms of autistic artists, in terms of really dealing with the issue head on. Petra Kuppers, who is a disability scholar, writes a lot about other performance artists with disabilities who do crip and who do deconstruct through performance art. But, I, but what I wanted to do was do it through a specifically autistic lens and do it through the lens and do it through the framework of installation art. Um, I have had conversations with my supervisor, with one of my supervisors who's brilliant, Dr. Sean May, and we speak often about this theory of the autistic aesthetic, which really came to be through some of the um, through some of the presentations of Autism Arts Festival, where uh, where Dr. Sean May noticed that this but this is but this unique aesthetic was really coming into play. So I try and take that and make it my own. Um, I believe that I have, I'm trying to look at my bookshelf. There is a specific, there is a specific academic where a, I believe he's an LGBTQ scholar and he specifically talks about this notion of cripping and deconstruction within the gay community and that I took that and put, and make, and, and put it into disability politics. But I do apologise, I, I can't remember the title or, off my head, but it was all very inspiring. And I suppose really what it comes down to is I remember when I was sat at the British Library and I was and I was working on my doctoral proposal and I came across this quote from Foucault and I'm gonna apologize, I might, I'm just gonna have to summarize it. But he said how he wants the his toolbox of writings to be used I suppose we can use it in contemporary framework as social justice. But he wants his writings to be taken and to be used to really turn around the power mechanics, to really expose the prejudices in society. And I thought, wow, if I can do that through my artwork, if I can incorporate Foucault's writings in my artwork to really expose those power mechanics behind autism representation in cinema and, and in TV and literature, and I can invite the public to then grasp that toolbox through my installation art and then for themselves to be able to crip and, sub and subvert those representations through my art, then, then that's what I really want to do. I suppose to wrap up my art, I've always wanted my art in its purest form to be what Foucault would call a heterotopia, where the power mechanics and the prejudices and stereotypes being presented to the spectator are put on an equal footing. They're made in a way, you know, like they're made very, um, what's the word? There's no, there's no hierarchy. So everything can be seen, everything can be, can be learnt and everything can be challenged on an equal footing. And in that way, because you have that neutral space for my installation art, it, it gives an educational opportunity for, for the public to then go away and for, and for them to change how they feel about autism representation. So the cripping and the deconstructing is really going deeply into the, into the power mechanics and subverting them. And I'm uh, exposing them, and 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 I suppose fragments. My installation art fragments does that, and the life and death of of an of an anonymous autistic man does that in a different form. In that I'm using the aesthetics of post-traumatic theatre. I'm using the aesthetics of Isla Kakarov's work to present that. Um, yeah, as yeah. a riddle, and then for that riddle, and then for that riddle for those puzzle pieces, for those power mechanics to be unpacked. I hope that makes sense. That makes absolute sense. Um, can I just ask you a little bit more about the relationship between um, the medical and and the personal, which I think is such a powerful part of your work and, and your sort of application and, and taking of a Foucauldian model into an art space. 
um, which I think is quite extraordinary. In, in the recent interview with Colin Hambrook that you um, gave in, in um, Disability Arts Online, you talk about your installation fragments and there's one part here that I think is particularly striking when you talk about how you used uh, the image from uh, uh, a section of the film Rain Man, which of course is you know, such a hugely influential uh, film um, from, I don't know, 40 years ago in you know, presenting such a powerful image of autism, which became quite uh, a dominant stereotype mm. and a very problematic one. And you use this scene of when, um, you know, if, from a doctor's surgery, and you say here uh, that you, under the, under the projection of this image was a desk and the spectators were free to look inside the desk and read through my entire medical history from birth to present. And in doing this, I wanted to show how much of my autistic identity lies within the construction of both fictional media and the medical model. Mm -hmm. And I think that's such a wonderful description of how those, those stories are inseparable, how our media representations and the way that we story ourselves are inseparable. Could you just give us a little bit more about that? Yes, of course. I, yes, of course. I, my primary real inspiration behind that model of thinking was um, Ian Hacking, wrote a paper and and he writes there about the looping effect which which to really summarize essentially means that the medical model says hey this is autism films could say this is autism and then the public perception says well this is autism and then what happens is that the medical model then echoes of what films say about autism films then echo off about what the medical model says about autism and then that then affects public perception which then feeds back into the medical model which then feeds back into the into the films and and tv media so it's a looping effect and and in doing so i found that my identity as an autistic individual isn't just placed in the phenomenological experience of self and it's not just placed in what the medical model tells me what autism is and it's not just fixated in what films and literature and tv says what autism is it's it's everywhere my identity splits into into all of those things and i think what's so for me what's so striking about about this is for example i I remember very well, I've been on, you know, in, in the past when I went on dates and I decided to disclose my autism. And a few times this has happened. I remember very clearly um, um, a girl once said, oh, so are you like Rain Man then? Straight away, that was her first reaction. And one's immediate response could be, cause how, you know, how horrifying that you were just stereotyped and dehumanized like that. But actually, I think it's fascinating that the very first thing another person thinks about is a mediated representation, a fictional representation of autism when, an, when another human being discloses their diagnosis to them. So I wanted, in doing, in doing, this, in, in doing this installation, where I wanted to give over my entire medical history in a desk with loop, you know, with the with the, with the looping scene of Rain Man, the doctor scene. I wanted the public to 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 see for themselves. Wait a minute, what that doctor is saying in this film, which is a fictionalized representation, I can see echoed within Daniel's own medical history, authored by the medical model. And I want people to take a look at that and to think, okay, where have we gone wrong in a society where we believe more in what fictional narratives have to say about autism than the actual autistic person has to say about it themselves? And I want people, you know, and, and, and for me, that was the striking point. That I have, a, I have a, a lot of uh, listening to you expound, uh, sort of unpack your, your theory and your work and having read your articles and having seen life and death, uh, I, 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 I was, I think I was struck by sort of an overwhelming amount of feeling and an overmounting, I think, uh, more than anything, a, a, a sense of recognition 
of perhaps the same issues and struggles that I have had. Uh, so there's a couple of ones. One is things I'd like to talk about. First, I'd like to talk about something artistic. And you've mentioned a couple of your um, uh, influences recently, uh, but a word that came up that I believe Janet used in your introduction and you refer to frequently is uh, is the influence of Franz Kafka. Mm -hmm. And um, Kafka is a, an author who I am a fan of. I, I think his work is... Um, what one could perhaps make the claim that his work captures something of what it is like to feel like an autistic individual. Mm. And I was wondering how you feel, how sort of the concept of being Kafkaesque or the presence of Kafka uh, sort of influences your work in the same way that sort of, sort of Foucault influences um, your work. So that's sort of really the first thing I'd like to hear out. And the second thing I think we can have perhaps a much longer discussion about later is you've mentioned, obviously, dating on the spectrum, uh, something that I am no stranger to. But I'm interested, um, you also talk about sort of the, the identity of being autistic as well. And something I wanted to, to, to know as well was how long has that sort of understanding or that label of autistic been applied to you was it mm -hmm. something that that came about later in life as it was for me I was in my early 20s when I finally got diagnosed or is it something that was applied at a young age and um and sort of if so was there always a sort of a sense of understanding a sense of difference that, that, that's mm -hmm. where I was sort of going with all this Sure. Um, no, thank you. Um, so I'll answer the questions in order that you um, asked me. Thank you. With Kafka, what strikes me the most when I read his works, particularly Metamorphosis and, you know, um, The Trial, is that, and is that he always works in metaphors. He always works in symbolism. He always works in a very, when one reads Kafka's works, one feels like one is involved in a dream, but there's a constant puzzle, there's a riddle, things aren't always necessarily made clear. And I think in a sense, Kafka's writing could be, could be considered a form of post-traumatic in that way. And I, that fits in perfectly with the, with the aesthetics I try and create, because as I write about in my showcase, I'm very, very heavily inspired by Isla Kakabov. And Isla Kakabov is also considered post-traumatic in the sense that one is invited into a dreamscape and one is invited into a puzzle where these dialectics are happening with the public event sort of also turn into a spectator. No, um, um, Boal, who 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 is a great uh, applied theatre scholar, he speaks about the spectator becoming a spect actor. In that, the spectators then also become performers. They're not just the audience. There's a dialectics going on. There's a relationship going on with the aesthetics and the viewer and the gazer. And so all of those things come into play. And with Kafka particularly. Um, with the installation I did, we were here. It was a, it was it it was sort of based off Franz Kafka's betrayal, because I found, as I said in the showcase, I found very strong connections between, you know, Frank, Kafka's fears of invisibility and disappearing and not being understood or being misunderstood. I met, you know, are, are for me is what really speaks loudly in the trial. And I found a lot of striking parallels between that and what was going on at the time when I made the, uh, when I made the installation, when um, the DSM removed Asperger's syndrome from, from, from understanding autism. So there's a lot of, you know, so, so there's a lot of links. So there's a lot of personal links there with, with what Kafka writes about, but I also feel that his aesthetic speaks very strongly to me because my art is about making people feel uncomfortable. It's about making people confront very difficult things and it's about challenging people. And I think that the dreamlike nightmarish 
aesthetic qualities of Kafka's work lends very well to how I want to present my work and how I want people to be challenged and, and to think about my work, if that makes, if that makes any sense. Um, so yes, yeah, so that's why I would call my work Kafka-esque because it's particularly denoting the dream metaphor symbolic like work that I always try and create and sorry and the second question was about my 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 autistic identity for me that's a very interesting journey I I I was diagnosed at about six seven years old I was diagnosed with Asperger's syndrome and this was in the 90s and this you know and in the 90s the model of thinking around autism was still very much, I feel, around the, around the tragedy model. It was very heavily fixated on the medical model. The concept of neurodiversity, when I was six or seven, didn't really exist. I hadn't, I hadn't certainly heard about it at that time. And I, and, and I went through the mainstream system and I had, and I went through hell and I had depression because of it and I was bullied. And when I was 16, I went to a all boys autistic boarding school for boys. And I went there for six years. And the system there was that being, having Asperger's syndrome, being autistic was something to, um, you know, they're, they're, being autistic were just, it was just, it was just hurdles, those same hurdles. We're going to teach you how to jump over the hurdles in a way that if you go through this experience, one day you'll come out of it and you'll be over the autism. In a way, you know, you'll be, you'll be cured from the struggles because we're going to give you one-to-one -one support and one-to-one -one help in how to be independent and, and in how to be mainstream. And I had six years of that. Now I'm not now. I'm not going to sit here and say, "Well, it was well, it was all terrible, and it never helped me." Because actually, no, a lot of it did help me. The one-to-one -one support did help me. The learning independent skills did help. So I can't, you know, I'm not just going to say it was all this terrible thing. But the framework in which the support was given was that being autistic was just a hurdle. Being autistic was just something to to try and, you know jump over and, and, and move on from. And I had that for six years. So naturally, my philosophy was hating that I had, that I was autistic because I thought, you know, why do I want autism? You know, it's just, all it's given me is just, it's just this notion of suffering and that I'm always going to struggle and that it hammered into my brain that I was always going to be different. And actually, I had to go through a very personal healing process of accepting being autistic for myself for a few years after that. And it was, you know, and, and it was only maybe three, in my very early twenties that I started to look at myself being autistic differently. When I started to meet other autistic people, other autistic scholars, when I started to discover autistic artists, and I thought, no, actually, it's not this thing that my boarding school taught me. That I can be a human being and be, you know, and be, that I can be an autistic human being and that I can live and, and love and be, and be me. And I'm very thankful that I had the positive experiences that I had. Or, you know, Altscape certainly was something that was very liberating for me as well in that sense and now my art it's you know my art is about humanizing those experiences it's about wanting to say to other autistic people you know like we're all human and it's okay that there are challenges and yes there are shit representations but you know what there's incredible academia going on about it. There's amazing art going on about it. You don't need to be alone. And to, non, and to the non-autistic public, it's saying, look, humanize. You, you know, like, remember, autistic people are humans. Don't go off 
on whatever you consume through the, uh, through the media and accept that there are challenges with it, with that, that autistic people go through that doesn't make them into robots, that doesn't mean that you have a right to silence their voices and to speak over them and to speak for them. And, and, and in fact, by going through the art that I'm presenting to you, take a step back and un, you know, and uncover those power mechanics that are applied onto autistic people through these films and do better and go away and think, how can I now in my own way humanize autistic people? And that doesn't need to be a direct way. You don't need to say to an autistic person, I'm so sorry, A, B and C, because in a way that's a bit of a, that's a bit of a tragedy model there. It's about watching the film and saying, you know what? I'm not comfortable with how that film is representing autism. Or reading a book and saying, actually, perhaps, you know, perhaps there should, you know, perhaps there can be some changes in how this, um, in how this narrative is going about. Or in the next conversation you have, you have with your non-autistic friend about uh, um, a autism narrative that you had consumed to have an intellectual conversation about how perhaps things can be better. So that's absolutely. how I feel, really. No, absolutely. I, I, I yeah, that's very, oh, that was very powerful. Uh, yeah, I completely agree. Janet, you wanted to uh, say something. Thanks, Ethan. I was just going to ask you, Daniel, about your installation, We Were Here, which from 2017, which you say is loosely based on Kafka's The Trial, but it's it, it seems to me to, to grasp that, that power relationship about the diagnosis of Asperger's and then Asperger's being removed from um, the DSM, uh, which the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of um, Defining Medical Conditions and in inverted commas, um, and you ask in this what happens to this community and the individual, individuals within it when the medical system erases it. And I think that's like such an interesting question. And there's been such a big assumption, I think, in, in mainstream versions of autism that this is undoubtedly a good thing. That Asperger's mm -hmm. itself was a troubled figure who had relationships to, to Nazi practices. Um, and, you know, here we go, let's remove it. And uh, as you say, without any real consultation. So could, could you give us a little more on that and your, you know, your experiences as someone who, who, has, who has that diagnosis? Sure. Well, I, I, I myself am a, um, I'm a third generation Holocaust survivor. Um, I, um, I'm, I'm Jewish and um, all of my father's family were, were by, by, by a few were murdered in the camps. Um, um, you know, I'm very close. Like my great aunt, she actually, I believe, um, she once told me that she shared a bunker with Anne Frank. If you read the graphic novel uh, Mouse, um, which 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 came into the news lately because it was banned in in a school in America. In um, there's a section in there about about the family being in the Sosnowick ghetto. My all of my family were in the very same ghetto that Moz takes place in. So I'm very close and 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 for sure. What came out about Hans Asperger? and Asperger syndrome and links to Nazi eugenics was very striking for me. And actually this is, this is an installation that I did. I did a mini installation around, around that discovery and especially around the writings of Edith Sheffer who wrote, who wrote a fantastic book on this subject. And that is actually an installation that I'm now in the planning stages of redoing of reconceptualizing so that's my next installation so that's something to to very much look out for in the future um but it's difficult because on the one hand it's so complicated when my identity of having asperger's syndrome just alone forget the holocaust you know forget being a third generation holocaust survivor but just alone is linked to that. And then being a third generation Holocaust survivor, it's very complicated. But at the same time, I'm 35 years old. Asperger's syndrome is, has, has been what defines me nearly my, you know, like nearly my entire life in terms of 
how I am autistic and to then, for then the mainstream saying, oh, we know it's okay. It's been erased, there's been difficult history. It says, you know, it betrays and it, and it again dehumanizes communities and individuals with Asperger's syndrome who might say, actually, you know, I identify with this because, because there is an online community of, of, of lots of people with Asperger's syndrome who actually like to be called Aspie, you know, like, um, you know, um, I'm an Aspie, you know, it's, it's a fond, you know, it's a fond way of taking in and it's quite Foucauldian in a sense, but they're taking, that people are taking in that medical diagnosis and they're making it their own. They're cripping it, they're subverting it, they're turning it onto, you know, like they're making it for themselves by, you know, by saying, I'm Aspie. This is an Aspie community. And then I think the medical establishment to come up you know, to come along and to try and take that away from people and say, well, actually, that doesn't exist anymore. We don't care that that's how you identify. We don't care that that's what, that, 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 that is what makes you comfortable. We don't care that so much of your own advocacy work is based around the label Aspie and Asperger's syndrome. It's got a bad, it's got a bad history, but you know what, whatever, bye. You're now just autistic. But there are so many people in that community who don't want to be defined as autistic. They want to be defined as Asperger's syndrome, as, 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 as Aspie. And who are we or anyone else to say, well, that's not allowed anymore. That's got no basis anymore in, in real life. And I think it's quite problematic. And, and again, I think that is, a problem of a mainstream hierarchy where people seem to think that people that doctors and scientists somehow have more rights to dictate what an individual's identity is than a person than that person or that community themselves i don't know where we go with this connection to Hans Asperger and Nazi eugenics, I think, if anything, this removal of Asperger's from the DSM has done more harm than good, because it's now taken away a a a, a place where people can have this important discussion around Hans Asperger's Nazi eugenics and identity. I think that still needs to be had. Certainly, I'm going to be doing a lot of work around it. I'm planning on going to Vienna to do research. I want to go to to that uh, to that uh, to that school where where that research took place. I want to do a lot around it. I think that discussion needs to be had, and I think it's harmful that it was removed from DSM. I think it's removed that platform for discussion. Personally, I think that question it's like for example heidegger heidegger has a lot of very interesting theories but heidegger was a nazi yet a lot of academia is rife and goes off and echoes off heidegger's work these are very difficult questions the ethics behind evil and academic research and the construction of identity is a complicated one. Can you say, well, I've Asperger's syndrome, but you know what? Hans Asperger, he, 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 you know, he was a bit of a Nazi and I don't have anything to do with him. I don't know if you can fully say that because so much of the identity is, is tied in to the construction of Asperger's. But I don't know, you know, it, it's a very difficult thing. And I think this is a very uncomfortable conversation that needs to be had. And I, and I think needs to be ongoing. I quite agree with you. I quite agree with you. And actually that sort of conversation, especially around <coughs> the medicine and sort of the, the concept of, of labels would, uh, is a good way. I'd like to talk a little bit about the film. Um, yes. In that respect, there's a couple of things which sort of, struck me in particular um 
so for those who have not seen the film and also should briefly bring a content warning in here we will be discussing suicidal thoughts and uh sort of uh, history of usage of uh, medication uh, for those who may have problems with that i thought there was there's one bit in particular which really struck me was that uh early on in the film you quote a article which was the average life expectancy of an individual with autism and i should stress uh, autism here because that is what is in the uh, actual um uh, study not to to uh, invalidate everything you've been very uh, lucidly and eloquently saying about the erasure of Asperger and I wish you the best with your research on that front Thank but you. it was really really interesting as well because I remember reading that article and feeling monumentally depressed about it because um, it's very hard as an autistic person to hear that your life expectancy is very limited shall we say so I think there was a couple of things in there um, what, one being sort of how so obviously you were you are now 35 as you said and obviously i suppose there's a certain sense of how does it feel now that you are closer to this um shall we say average age which has a number of caveats in it how do you feel about that sort of uh th those sorts of statistics and in relation to that you mentioned later on in the film uh I, I'm sorry, I can't be your uh, tragic inspiration. I think that's mm. something that's been. I think that's something that's been coming up a lot in our conversation today. Is that concept of being a uh, a, 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 a hegemony's uh, idea of something to be looked at, something to be sort of cherished uh, as a sort of something that you know you can't overcome. That it's the hurdle you just have to get over if you wish. So I was sort of wondering how all of those things how the uh, how that sort of um study made you feel and how you feel about it now and also uh how how sort of you use those sort of aesthetics of that robotic voice the the shots of the pills to really sort of discomfort the audience as well which i, I noted in particular yeah so look first of all i'm around that age now that the article was speaking about and when I, when I, I feel like when I read that article, when I was making this art, I felt in terms of mental health, at that time, I was in a much more difficult place. Obviously, you know, today, I, my depression hasn't gone away and, you know, and I still have struggles. And I think it's very, it's very stark and it's very sad that I have, that I'm in a position but I have to think, shit, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm so, so, like, I'm coming up to this age where the suicide rate is so prevalent with autistic people. And, you know, it makes me angry because I feel that it doesn't have to be this way. That if society did more to really give a damn about making sure that autistic people were humanized. I would never have had to make that art. The article would never have to be a thing and I would never have to want people to confront this. And I lay the blame solely, not on the autistic individual, but I lay the blame on the public sphere and I lay the blame on how the media represents autism, and I lay the blame on how the medical establishment dictates how an autistic people should feel about their own autism. And this piece of video art, now it's important for context because it was in the Crips Gallery, which is in King's Cross, and it's a great gallery. And the Crips is literally the Crip, Crips. It's like it's like the Crip, it's like an underground sort of grave, like grave place where people are buried. So I thought it was very, so even the, the installation was also designed around the aesthetics of that space, the, the as Derrida would call the ontology of that space that my aesthetics was designed around. And I think Derrida's notion of ontology is something also important that I like to think about in my work and in the context of where I place my installations as well. Ontology is something which I think 
should always be considered whenever making, whenever placing an installation, but that's neither here nor there. So the aesthetic behind the pills falling and the money, and so let's talk about the voice. The voice was a purposely robotic voice because if we're going to simplify things, it's about the dehumanization of the autistic self. This article was very dehumanizing. The fact that autistic people have to feel that they have to get to a place where they have to commit suicide is in itself a very dehumanizing process. I wanted people to come in and to watch that video. And this was, by the way, this video was designed for a non-autistic audience. I wanted people to have a dehumanizing process through watching that film. So there was the voice, there was the whole, am I, you know, like, just enough to be your tragic inspiration? I'm sorry, I can't be your tragic inspiration. When that installation was made, there was a lot of talk in, in Hollywood around, God, what was that film? So it was a film which came out, I can't remember the title, about a guy in a wheelchair, um, this oh, guy who was in oh, a wheelchair. Me Before You? Yeah, me before yes, you. Yes, I know. I know exactly what you're talking about. Yes, God, that yes. Was, that film has a lot of issues to say the very, very. Yeah, well. me before you. So I remember those. I, I think at the time those conversations around that, and I wanted to include that, and and I sort of took what was going on there, and I echoed it onto with autism as well, and and like Big Bang Theory, and 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 and. Um, the Benedict Cumberbatch movie, which was oh, made. Imitation, imitation Game, where they uh, basically retcon Alan Turing as having autism. Um, yeah, that is a... Again, yeah, it was like made into a machine. It was like basically yeah, effectively. a calculator. Effectively, said, yes. And um, so there was a lot of that stuff going on when I, when I was writing that script. But I thought I wanted to show a non-autistic audience how these harmful representations can lead to extreme feelings of isolation and loneliness and 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 i mean eventually sadly possibly death and that the the suggestion to just take some pills you'll be okay in is for me a chemical lobotomy it's a mod. It's just another form of a modern-day lobotomy. Hey, you're autistic. You have struggles of depression. Here, have some metazapine. Have some of that. Have some of this. Go away. Come back in another year. See how you're doing. And I and and I know that might sound very, very controversial and very radical, but I truly believe that in its most pure form. It is most extreme, intense form. It is just another version of a, it's, it's just another version of a lobotomy, essentially, because it's news to silence people. It can help, but it also silences because you don't always need to take medication. If society gets better at humanizing an autistic individual, maybe we don't need medication and pills and chemical processes and endlessly going to and endlessly going to the doctors. So this cascade of falling pills, of painkillers, of antidepressants, of whatever it can be, because there because there is no definition of what of what pills were falling in that film. It can be whatever it can it can be whatever interpretation it can be. And the fact that slowly over time, over this narrative, it comes into, it comes, like it dissolves and it overtakes the whole image, can be seen as a metaphor for how medicine can, can also silence a voice and how this can also lead to these high mortality rates. It was designed as a confrontation for, for a non-autistic audience to think this is not good enough. We are doing something wrong. Something needs to change. We are responsible. That was really interesting, actually. And uh, uh, I'd like to talk a little bit more about that sort of the, 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 the I'll be honest, <clears throat> I wrote notes before obviously starting uh, the, um, this conversation with you because I felt it'd be useful to sort of gather my thoughts. And one of them was about asking about your relationship to medication because medication, I must confess, I 
I will not say I'm on the absolute opposite side of the fence to you, but certainly I am somebody whose autism has, whose experience of autism has been, if I say ameliorated, I don't mean that in like a, to to invalidate your point of view, but certainly I have found in some cases medication to be a positive. But you you make a very, I think I think you make a very nuanced point about how medication can be used as a catch-all, and I think. Yeah, I, 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 I found I, I found it uh, watching all those sort of tablets and watching the um, watching them come down and sort of that uh, that uh, screen uh, the screen becomes sort of white very arresting in that respect, especially as somebody who does take medication every morning and has found it um, incredibly useful. But I know that others have found it to be incredibly um, harmful, and I think that also speaks to something which I think. I'd quite like to talk to you about, which is something we've brought up already, which is the idea of a monoform of autism. Mm. Um, and a monoform of neurodiversity actually would be perhaps more accurate, considering obviously ADHD and indeed Asperger's are continued under this sort of broad umbrella. And it's the idea, I think, of a sort of a social idea of there is but one difference. Uh, and it's a difference to be a difference that is scary to, I think, a non-autistic, non non-neurotypical, <coughs> uh, sorry, a non-neurodiverse audience. And um, there's something I think a little bit Kafkaesque in that as well, in terms of we are being put on trial, if you wish, for differences that we cannot control and differences mm-hmm. we, we simply cannot avoid. Um, and, our, and our difference comes from uh, our differences based on slight social cues that we cannot understand. So, so I found that very, very uh, intriguing uh, in that respect. And I was wondering if you had any thoughts about what, what I've just said. <clears throat> could you, could you um, recon- uh, recontextualize your question? Yes, no, of course not. Yes, you're right. I, I, I suppose I really didn't give much of a question. I, I suppose, I suppose is, my, my question is, do you uh, do you see as your your work fundamentally as breaking down the idea of a monoform of autism, and um, if so, uh, and if so, how do you feel neurodiversity informs your art, and indeed, what is your opinion on neurodiversity in general? Do you feel it to be a positive, or do you feel there are drawbacks to it? With neurodiversity, I feel that it's a very radical framework of thinking about the autistic experience. I and I think in a way it's in a it's quite liberating for people because people a lot of people can find themselves who've been stuck to the medical model's way of thinking, and then neurodiversity comes along and says, "Well, actually." There's no real such thing as difference. It's not necessarily, there's no negative connotations to your, to your autistic experience. And your neurological way of understanding and processing the world is just a natu- it's just a natural form of variance. And I think that can be very powerful for people who, who, who have always been told, well, you're different, you're less, you're this and you're that. And I think that in terms of how that affects cinema and art and literature will be very powerful because now with neurodiversity, autistic individuals can can say, well, actually, I'm not less and I'm no different. And I can really start to talk about and explore the autistic experience within a different framework, which isn't bogged down by the medical system. I think it gives a freedom of phenomenological expression that has for many years been stifled by the medical establishment. And I certainly also think that new diversity is a very powerful driver within how autistic organisations and charities work because it's a very liberating, it, it can be very liberating for, I feel, for an organisation to fully embrace neurodiversity. 
And your other question, could you, so I apologize, could you um, contextualize for me about words you said? You said, um, you said. Monoform. This will have to be edited. Could you explain no, right. to me monoform, please? Yeah, no. I, no, that's fine, mate. Uh, so the idea of me using the word monoform is something I sort of came up with myself, I suppose, although it's been used in a different in different ways. Monoform basically suggests that there's one conception of what an autistic person looks like or acts like or thinks like. Right. And that is generally considered to be the one and only. And it's something that you work on a lot in your art. And I noticed this because Rain Man is partly contrib contributing to that monoform in yes. terms of Raymond is, uh, demonstrates certain, um, uh, shall we say, symptoms or, or, or uh, traits that we may, that are classically associated with it. I see, I see, okay. Yeah. okay. And, mm. and, I, I, I'm and I, what I was interested in was your art in particular. So uh, your installation where you presented your medical history seems to be a real sort of challenge to that. And <clears throat> and, and I was interested sort of in you describing that more. And I also think as well, yeah. it's something that uh, you what you just mentioned also really interests me as well. Was in some respects your art functions almost as a permanent marker and a living witness to that difference and to a challenge to that it's mm. without wanting to sound too rhetorical it is all well and good for you and i to stand in the street and shout and to have conversation but conversation eventually in some respects conversation can fade it is transitory yet mm. art yet art in itself be it writing uh film or your installations has a permanent quality mm. which allows it to be preserved for future generations and i think installation in particular is very interesting for that because it combines both the the concrete in terms of the the physical uh, elements there the the film the the medical history but also the lived experience that a witness can come and interact with as well if that makes mm -hmm. any sense yeah it does so so no so thank you for the question so for sure how do i feel about monarchism so first of all absolutely there is no set autistic identity and this is what hollywood is so fixated on and this is what the medical system is so fixated on and even if you have rain man from the 80s to the big bang theory many 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 years later you will see a very fine line, a strong connection between the two. And nothing much seems to change. And, and, and even though there's been developments in, in, in rhetoric about the autistic self, and even though there's been more of an acceptance in neurotypical society around, around neurodiversity, it's always only ever going to be empty, empty words unless the set path of you know the set image of the autistic self is broken and and is not accepted and is seen as problematic and my art right you know my art comes along especially in fragments and um and in my other pieces like we were here it says actually no that not only is there not only one set way of seeing and thinking and understanding and accepting the 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 the, the rhetoric the narrative the form the self of autism the phenological expression of autism this sociological understanding of autism it's it's complex and it's and and, and it's everywhere and and obviously you know in the autism community we we all have that saying like once you've met one autistic individual, you've only met one autistic individual. But I would say, I would actually say it goes beyond just the one. It's, it's once, it's, 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 you have, it's like you've never just met one autistic individual. You've always only ever just met fragments of your autistic self. And that you can't ever say, well, this is what is autism. This is what is the autistic experience. Daniel Benderman shows me what as no, I don't, I don't, I don't show you anything. I just show you zero 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 point one percent of what 
a construction of autism could be, but is so deeply in, in, uh, um, invested and echoed within all understandings of autism, cinema, TV, literature, philosophy, politics, public perception, art. And my art says, actually, I want you to come in and I want you to really think about that. Because the moment then you try and strangle that, you try and take away that complexity of how, of, of the, of the, of the rhetoric and self of autism, then you're doing a disservice. Then you're actually not being truthful and you're not serious about wanting to humanize the dehumanization of the autistic self. And, um, you know, I always like my, my tagline as an artist is deconstruct the construct. You've got to deconstruct the construction of the autistic self, the autistic image, the autistic rhetoric. And I, and, and I hope that through my, through my arts, that can enable people to start doing those things. That is incredibly, yeah, I, I really respect and vibe with that. Janet, I'm sorry, Janet, you, you wanted to say something. Coming back to, I'd just like to come back to one aspect of, of, of the film in relation to what you're saying about, um, you know, the one version of autism that gets put out there, um, the life and death presents that to us, life and death of an anonymous autistic man. And we have this voice that you were talking about a minute ago as being dehumanizing and, and in its kind of automatic quality. There was also something about the way you use the repetition of words in that voice and phrases that I found really quite lulling. I found, I found myself being drawn into this, that it, mm. that it was almost as though there was a melancholy to it. There was this voice kind of, you know, announcing these, these, these phrases that were about the short lifespan of the average autistic person, the suicide rate 7.5 times more likely, um, depression and so on. So this is kind of this roster of negativity um, statistically with autism. And yet this voice is telling you in this very calm way and the images are kind of like snow floating around or mm. ash quite, and bubbles. Um, it, it, it's, it seemed very soothing. And yet what you were saying wasn't soothing. So I just wanted to kind of ask you whether that was a deliberate contrast in that piece. For sure, yeah. I, I suppose it's, I was, I was trying to put across an aesthetic of hopelessness you know, you know, and it gets to the point where what else can you say? How else can you protest? What voices can you do if your voices are never going to be listened to? And ultimately, the aesthetic of, hey, this, this narrator who's talking has given up. He's accepted that, that, uh, that whatever's going to happen is going to happen because it's representing a failure of the public and a failure of a medical establishment and a failure of, of representations that led to, to this point. So the monotone and the repetition, that's what it's about. Ethan, do you have a last quick question or should we wrap here? No, I, 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 think, I think if anything, the, the last thing I have to say is that there is, I was reading a little bit about Kafka being Kafkaesque uh, yesterday and something that came up was uh, someone talking about what it means to be Kafkaesque in writing and they mm. noted something which is there is always a process of surviving and st struggling but surviving against apparently mysterious dreamlike odds which are stacked against, in, uh, against your favour and I feel like, if I may say, and I mean this in the most positive way possible, your work <clears> then is pure, is is very Kafkaesque in the best way possible for the manner in which it maintains its struggles and survives and thrives against a system which has uh, said that it is not valued. So in that respect, I have a, a, a an intense amount of respect for you and your art. Thank you so much. Thank you.
Okay, I think we need to finish here. Thanks for a fascinating conversation about your work. We didn't even get to Ilya Kakapov or uh, <laughs> uh, insulation work. Um, perhaps we'll come back to that another time. Daniel, thank you very much for, for sharing your work with us and your insights. Uh, Ethan, thanks very much for your uh, discursive points in this. Um, and we look forward to hearing the episode go live. Thank you. Thank you. You have been listening to the Autism Through Cinema podcast, brought to you by the Autism Through Cinema project from Queen Mary, University of London, and The Wellcome Trust. Big thanks to Leverett Jakes for editing this episode. Our theme song is Waterfall by Meter, used under a Creative Commons attribution from Null Teal Records. Follow us on Twitter at Autism Cinema, and find out more about the project on autism-through-cinema.org.uk. If you have any feedback, comments or suggestions for future episodes, please do get in touch with us on cinemaautism at gmail.com. Many thanks for listening.